sure hope you brought your Bibles. We'll, um, we'll be moving around quite a bit in, uh, in those things tonight. But, of course, uh, the focus of our attention is Romans chapter 10. Now, I, I want you to know that I, um, I realize that y'all make fun of me because we're going so slow through Romans. I know that you talk bad about me and, and behind my back and uh, say, what's the matter with him? Um, uh, he's he's uh, a dullard. <laughs> Somebody get his name. Um, but I promise that we're going to pick up the pace after Romans chapter 12. <laughs> we should be able to cover chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 in a couple of years. But, um, but uh, uh, guys, it's texts like the one that is before us tonight that, if anything, we should slow down, not speed up. Um, the... the the gospel and, and all of its beauty is crammed into, actually, it's nine brief Greek words. It's 14 English ones, at least in my translation. But there's only nine Greek words. And it is, it is, um, it is jammed with um, um, very significant central truth. I mean, this is not about baptism. It's not about eschatology. This is about the gospel. The redemptive message that is in verse 4. Um, and so, again, if, if anything, we ought to slow down, not, not speed up. Let me, let me read you um, verses 3 and 4. We've already looked at 3 two weeks ago. We'll look at 4, Lord willing, tonight. Here we go. i tell you what. I'm going to read four verses. I'm going to read 1 through 4. Here we go. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Gang, um... Verse 4 is connected to verse 3 by that conjunction, um, that little word for, that it opens with, that is, this is a continuation of the thought of verse 3, which is really an explanation of verse 2. You remember, he says in verse 2, oh, uh, Judaism has a zeal for God, but it's not one according to knowledge. And then he begins to explain to you what he means by their lack of knowledge. He says three things in verse 3 that we've already looked at. They're ignorant of righteousness that comes from God. They seek to establish their own. This is all a description of that ignorance. Um, And they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, this verse 4 is the essence of what Judaism is ignorant of. But may I add, it's it's not only... It's not only the essence of what Judaism is ignorant of, but all unbelief, gang. Not simply Jews. It is the crux of unbelief today. All unbelief. Whatever variety and shape or form it comes in, this is the crux of unbelief. As I said, it's only nine Greek words, but they are power-packed. Unbelief, in all of its variety... In all of its various shapes and sizes, whatever you want to, however you want to name it, unbelief doesn't get this. 
It doesn't get verse 4. Now, what is it that it doesn't get? Before we get to that, <laughs> let me give you just a couple of three little introductory principles. Now, guys, don't forget, we're simply trying to explain what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. That's, that's critical. And we're trying to understand that. Now, first of all, this is just kind of a, a general principle that I wanted you to notice. That the work of Christ is being presented to you uh, with reference to and in the context of law. That is, he, the, Christ, this person of Christ is the end of the law. So the discussion that Paul has for you in, in, in explaining and exposing unbelief, he sets down the work of Christ in the context of and with reference to the law. Now again, first, Judaism was not wrong with its emphasis upon the importance of law. They were right in suggesting that no man could ever stand before God without keeping the law. That is not wrong. It is not wrong for Judaism to say that that law is very, very critical. But gang, I would have you to know that his work, that is the work of Christ, is not set in the context of the love of God. It is set in the context of the law of God. Jesus is not primarily the announcer that God loves no matter what. Jesus Christ is primarily the end of the law for righteousness. Gang, um, your understanding of this salvation that we so value has to be understood in the context of, or in terms of, the satisfaction of law. Now, I'll try to make that clear as we go on, but uh, that's just kind of a, a general thing I wanted you to notice. The work of Christ is being set, it's being framed in the context, not of love, but of law. Jesus Christ is the end of law. Uh, for righteousness. That's the first thing I wanted you to note, just an introductory principle. Secondly, also I want you to notice, very, very simple, but it is Christ who is the satisfaction for that. Uh, I said this a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Christ is the satisfaction. Christianity is Christ. Uh, Christ. Christ is everything. He is at the center of... He is at the center of all that we call Christianity, guys. Now, I'm, you think, well, I can see that. That's very simple. But let me, let, gang, just to give you an, um, kind of an application of that. Folks, uh, in John 16, 15, um, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will glorify me. The role of the Holy Spirit is to, is to lead you to glorify the second person of the Trinity. What, if, 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 you, if your eyes are somehow taken off of Christ and placed on something else, you missed it. You're off center. 
because Christ is the satisfaction of law and the role of the Holy Spirit is to point to him because he's at the center of it all. We could go further. We won't. I, I won't indulge myself. Now, guys, um, taking a look again as to what is, what is the meaning of verse 4. Um, let, let me start I mean, trying to tell you what this means, meant there. Let me start by telling you what it doesn't mean. That is, what Paul is not saying. Um, are we being told by the Apostle Paul that the law has been done away with? <laughs> and my answer is no. He's not, you're not being told that. Guys, that is... Um, that is called something. It's called antinomianism. I, you've, you've seen this word up on this board before, I, I think. Antinomianism. Is Paul saying that, the, um, that somehow the Christian can bid a fond farewell to the law? No, he's not saying that, folks. That's not what is being intended. That's antinomianism. Um, guys, if you, can, if you can find this real quick, uh, over in Matthew 5... I told you we'd be flipping around a little bit. But um, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this comment in verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a good word right there, that fulfilled them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, guys, that word fulfilled and that word accomplished really is going to help you when we try to understand 10, chapter 10, verse 4. Law is never to be set in opposition to grace. Gang, um, the law is a permanent expression of what God is like. And it is a permanent expression of how God would have people live. All people. One of the results of becoming a Christian is that you and, I, you and I now are enabled to obey the law. The standards have not been lowered by grace. The law has not disappeared and it's not supposed to disappear from discussion among God's people. So that's not what's being said. I tell you what, let, let me just do this. Um... Just to make sure you're all still awake. Um, all right, you Bible scholars. I mean, I'm, I'm going to prove my point that it's an, I'm going to try to prove my point that it is a permanent expression of the nature of God. I tell you what, um, all of you Bible scholars out there, tell me this. Here's a question for you. This is a simple one, but uh, you, you tell me this. Um, in the Ark of the Covenant, there was some item. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant was, don't you? You know the the the, uh, the temple was a was a uh, that, uh, whatever that thing is, and then you know you had the holy place. You've seen all this before, and you had the holies, the holies, the holies back here in the veil, and and in that in this room is the is the ark of the covenant. That's the thing that Indiana Jones was looking for. Remember, uh, and he found it. It's in a warehouse in Washington D.C. Um, but in um, in the ark of the covenant, it contained some items. What were they? I tell you what. First of all, how many items were in there? Three. Good. What items were they? Manna. Manna. Jar of manna. Aaron's rod that budded. And what? The Ten Commandments. The three items inside of the ark were Aaron's rod that budded, 
uh, a jar of manna, and inside that little thing right there, um, uh, under the, the, the little slab of gold, was those three things. Now, keep your fingers there, and I want you to turn over with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. See if you can find that's in the Old Testament for all of you um, from the Methodist Church. Um, <laughs> that's just a joke. That's just a joke. I'm, I'm just, uh, sorry. I lost my head there just for a second. Um, all right, guys. You just told me, you just told me that inside the Ark of the Covenant there were three items. You just told me that, didn't you? Now look with me at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse... Um, oh, well, this is... This is, look at, if, if your Bible's like mine, it says the ark is brought into the covenant in chapter 8. Okay? I mean, it's been, excuse me, it's been brought into the temple. The ark of the covenant's being brought into the temple. So this, this, this huge celebration that Solomon's got going on. Uh, look at verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Uh-oh, there's a leak in the Ark of the Covenant. Where are they, guys? Where are the other two things? Where is the, 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 um, the, the jar of manna and, the, and the, uh, Aaron's rod? But where did it go? Very frankly, I don't know. I can tell you this. There have been 500 years that have transpired between um, bringing, uh, or when, when Moses put that stuff in there, and this First Kings chapter 8. But here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. What is still in there? The Ten Commandments. The law. Guys, you know, I can't prove what I'm about to say. This. You know, um, Aaron's rod that budded, that was to identify that Aaron and Moses were the chief authorities in Israel because they were being, there was, there was a, a competition trying to take over from Moses. They said, well, we'll, we'll settle that. Well, that's not an issue anymore. Moses and Aaron are dead and gone. Jaramana stayed in there, but now they're, they're in Israel and they're well provided for. I, I mean, I can just see that those things were no longer useful. So they're gone. But there's one thing still in there. The law. Why? Because it is a permanent expression of what God is like. And it is a permanent description of how he would have people, any kind of people, his people, or anybody else for that matter, how he would have them live. No, ladies and gentlemen, when Paul says that Jesus is the end of the law, he is by no means suggesting that the law can be done away with and forgotten. No, no. Okay, then. If he's not saying that, then what is he saying? Look at the text, guys. How is Christ the end of the law? Now, guys, I, I hope you can answer that without me trying to explain it to you, because it's, it's really wonderful. Gang, first of all, the Greek word, we're going to use this in a little bit later, but the Greek word for end... Really, that's the, most, that's the key word in the Greek sentence. There's only nine Greek words in the Greek sentence. Uh, so the, and the, the key word is this one. Telos. It means end. 
And interestingly, in the Greek sentence, it's the first word. Now, when Greeks were trying to emphasize things, there was two positions in a sentence where emphasis could be placed. Put the word at the beginning or put it at the end. When Paul came, got ready to write, the, the emphasis that he's trying to make is end. Christ is the end. He is the end of the law. In the sense, just like you saw in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, He is the end of the law that all of it has been accomplished. All of it has been fulfilled. All of its stipulations. All of its rules. All of its details. Gang, think, think of this. Um, uh, Galatians 4.4 4 says that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born uh, uh, by a woman, I forget, but under the law. That is, Jesus, His birth. You remember what happens right when He gets born? Where, where does Mary take Him? She takes Him to the temple and does what? He's circumcised! Why? Because of the fulfillment of the law. Remember those two pigeons, those two turtle doves that she... By the way, uh, the provision in the law was you're supposed to bring a, a, some kind of lamb or bull or something. But if you were poor and you couldn't afford those two, you could bring turtle, you could bring pigeons. And so the fact that Mary and Joseph brought pigeons was an indication that they were poor people. But he's in there, born under law. And then last week, Sunday morning, we talked about his baptism. What's he doing? He's fulfilling all righteousness. Not one jot, not one tittle are going to fast away until all of it's accomplished. Guys, that is what is in view here when Paul says, He is the end of the law for righteousness. Everything that the law demanded has been accomplished. Everything that the law demanded has been fulfilled. He is the end. He is the perfection of the law for those who believe in Him. And we'll see that in a minute. But gang, all that the law calls for from me, He has accomplished for me. All of its demands have been met. Every, every moral demand that the law has insisted upon has been met. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He kept the whole blasted thing. It's all been accomplished, folks. It's all been it's it's all been fulfilled. Now, um, if you're if you're still awake and, and are a, a thinking uh, individual, you might be thinking, okay, well he fulfilled. Then why the cross? Why then did he have to die? Oh my goodness! Um, 
Why the cross? Because, ladies and gentlemen, the other part of his accomplishments is that he has to meet the demands of the law for punishment in terms of its violation by me. You see, guys, when you think of your, your own sense of redemption and you fix yourself upon the cross, you missed out. Because the, the, the Judaism was right. No man can stand before God until the law is accomplished. He did that, not at the cross. He did that from the moment he was born until he resurrected. Well, to uh, the moment he was crucified. He accomplished it all. All of its demands were met. But, if I am in union with him, there's violation. And so what the cross is, guys, is him receiving all of the punishments that were rightly meted out by the law. Christ's dying in his death, he bore the legal penalty for all of the violations of his people. Now, guys, um, I'm going to do something that's going to bore you for a second. But um, if you've never heard this, you need to hear this. But if you have, many of you have heard it because I've done it two or three times. But this might be the sixth. Who knows? But there's another little twist. You'll understand in a second. But guys, okay. So the law has been accomplished from birth to crucifixion. All of its demands are met. Okay, but there's a penalty um, because of his people. So that penalty is now paid in his death. Okay? So by his life fulfilling all of its accomplishments and his death paying for all of its penalties, when he's hanging from the cross, he makes a statement in John chapter 19. And the statement that he makes, which I think, ladies and gentlemen, is the most important statement in the Old Testament. The statement that he makes is, It is finished. It is finished. What is he saying? Oh, life is over for me. All of my 33 years have led me to this. And finally the whole ordeal is over. Oh my goodness, no. He's saying, all the penalties have been paid. And all of the demands have been met. It is finished. Now, stay with me. You've heard that before. The Greek word that is found in... I mean, actually... That sentence, it is finished, is one Greek word. It is the Greek word, it is this one. Nah. Tetelestai. Now guys, it's, um, stay with me, this is what I've done before. Uh, in the early 50s, I think it was 1952, a little shepherd boy is uh, out playing in, uh, around the Dead Sea. He takes a rock, he throws it into a cave, and he hears something break. He hears something like glass or pottery that breaks. He goes into this cave, and he makes the greatest archaeological discovery of, of the 20th century. You've heard of it before. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. A little shepherd boy found those, playing around the Dead Sea. He's playing one day, throws a rock in there, tinkle, tinkle. He goes inside, and look what's in here. 
the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. That's how it was found. There's all kinds of copies of the Old Testament in there. There's all kinds of this. There's stuff about the Essenes and, and um, the um, Maccabeans. All kinds of stuff in there. But in that treasure trove of archaeological discovery, there was hundreds and thousands, uh, maybe I won't say that, hundreds of what they call bills of lading or receipts. You know when you buy something and they, you know, they, you put your money down there and they give you this receipt, they give you the yellow copy, and on the bottom of it, they, they get this little rubber stamp and they stamp in here, paid in full. You think you bought something you had a receipt like that before? Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, on those receipts found in the Dead Sea, in 1952, hundreds of receipts stamped on the bottom of them, or written on the bottom of them, was this word. In commercial transactions, dating from the uh, 4th century B.C., there were receipts in there, hundreds of them, and it had this word written on the bottom, saying, communicating, implying, the bill for this transaction is paid in full. It's all paid. You don't know anymore. There's no more tax. There's no more luxury fees. Nothing. It's tetelestai. It is finished. Now, you've heard that before. But here's the part you haven't heard. Did you notice something? That the root of this word is from the same family that this word is found? But guys, Jesus is the end of the law. And when He finished His work, both life and death, the word that He uses is a word that signifies it's over, it's done, it's completed, it's, it's, it's wrapped up, completed, fulfilled, accomplished. The same word that you find in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Everything that that law asked for, everything that that law demanded, everything that that law wants, everything that that law requires, tell us. It's done. It's completed. It's silenced. It cannot cry, Oh, but to you have some people who have violated the law. Yes, it can say that. But, in union with Christ, the punishment has been taken. The demands meted out for violations have been absorbed in a crucified Christ. Now, guys, um, how am I to be sure that the law is satisfied? Well, Paul makes another statement earlier in the book of Romans. This is in Romans 4. He says in verse 25, 24, but for um, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Gang, how can I be sure 
that the law <clears throat> has been ended in its demands upon me. The resurrection. Christ's work is rewarded with a new life. He's vindicated as will all those who are in union with him. They too will be given new life. Now guys, let me restate this in, in trying to um, make it as clear as I can. The law comes to us and says, unless you obey me perfectly, you are damned. So Christ obeys it perfectly. And then gives that perfection to me. So, the law is met. Because Christ is the end of the law. That's what this says. That's what this means, guys. So, guys, um, can you see now, in our preaching and in our teaching, to fail to speak of law is so cruel to our audiences. It's cruel not to, not to use the law. Because, guys, the moment you see, the moment you realize the demands of God's holy law on you, you see the hopelessness of your condition. And the only remedy that's available is found in the one who is the end of the law. Gang, unbelievers just don't get that. The problem, guys, with unbelief is not that they have intellectual hang-ups. It's not an academic issue. It's not a question of whether it's clear enough. The issue is they have not yet seen the hopelessness of their condition as a result of seeing the demands of the law placed on them. So for us to fail to teach or to set Christ's work in the context of law is to be positively cruel to people. Because that's the way they finally come to the realization my case is hopeless outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of things and we're done. Look at the text. For whom is Christ the end of the law? The text tells you. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes and to no one else. There is no um, universal salvation. There is no um, 
a universal application of the finished work of Christ. The application of the work of Christ is to everyone who believes. Now, one final thing, and one other text, and I'm done. So, who is it that believes that? It's those people who have seen that the law condemns them. And once they've seen that, and that their situation is hopeless outside of Christ, then those are the people who want to chase this Jesus around for the rest of their lives. I want to show you one more thing, and um, i got four minutes. Um, Acts chapter 15, if you can find that real quick. Just an interesting little statement. Uh, just to tell you, Acts 15 is the council at Jerusalem. There's a big battle between Jews and Gentiles as to what, uh, what, what the church is going to require of Gentiles, etc. And so in the midst of all this, um, uh, Peter stands up in verse 7, Acts 15, 7. Peter stands up and says, wait a minute, guys, we can't ask them to do that. We can't ask them to add circumcision to this thing. We can't ask them to have baptism. We can't ask them to do nothing. Don't do any of that. That's crazy. And, and notice what he says uh, in verse 10. He speak, this is Peter's... Argument, um, verse nine, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here it is. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Here it is. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Do you know who believes this gospel? It's people who understand. Neither our fathers nor we have been able to keep it. Why would you put law around them? Our fathers didn't keep it. We didn't keep it. We can't keep it. So why would you insist on it being kept when you know it can't be kept? Who is it that values the finished work of Jesus Christ? People who understand that their condition is hopeless outside of Christ because the law has condemned them. Gang, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And indeed, there cannot be. All is well. All is safe. All is everlastingly secure. Because Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. Now, why would you want to go fast through that? <laughs> Father, it is a glorious piece of news that the one we call our Savior is, um, has done it all. He's uh, from, from birth to death. He's accomplished it and then went on to pay for the violations that I had accrued and they are monumental and now because of this great work of the Holy Spirit in, in this work of regeneration you have joined us you have made us in union with Christ and the law can clamor all it likes but for us, its clamorings are over because our great advocate, Jesus Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness. Our righteousness 
is Christ. Christ, Christ, and more Christ. Might there be a great stirring of our love and affection for Him whose every move, whose every moment was lived on behalf of His people. We glorify and praise the one who found a way to save some people as wicked as we are through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.